I'm Carlos Virgen, and this is The Storyline, produced by The Day in New London, Connecticut. Lindsay Boyle talks to us about two recent stories about deep personal loss. She shares how she prepares for these very personal and emotional stories. And Charlie Clark gives us the latest in a growing controversy about an upcoming school building vote in North Stonington. Lindsay, tell me about a couple of stories you've written recently that involve uh, sitting down with people and having them tell you uh, painful stories of loss. So it just so happened that, that in a, basically a two-day span, I ended up writing about uh, the loss of some, some fairly young uh, members of our community. Um, the, the first story was uh, I ran this past Sunday, um, and that, that story I sat down with an East Lyme family. They had lost their son, Danny Myshock, to a drug overdose um, early last year, actually, um, coming up on the year anniversary as we speak. Um, but they were honest about it in, in their obituary, which is kind of what, what struck me. I, I read that obituary right after it happened, and it stuck with me. So it took some time for them to uh, heal enough to sit down with me, but they agreed to do that, and it ended up being quite a powerful story. So this was a year ago, and they spoke to you a week ago or so. Right, right, right. And then uh, the second story um, is much more recent. Um, Probably most of you are aware that there was a boating accident in Groton over the weekend um, on Saturday. So um, that ended tragically. It ended with two of the three people aboard the boat dying. Um, and surely the third um, being scarred for the rest of his life. Um, and, and, and in both of those cases, uh, both of the deceased, their mothers agreed to speak to me. Um, it's not always something that happens, and, it, and it's pretty intense two days after a death. Did you reach out to them? Did they reach out to us? So... Um, Basically, I mean, when, whenever someone dies in a community, um, whether it's a, a violence of an accident like this, um, we do try uh, to reach out. So with the two men in, in the boating accident, um, Joseph Fermica and Joseph Grislak, I put out a bunch of feelers um, mostly on Facebook. I messaged people who had posted condolences or sorrowful messages. So I got in touch with that family through Facebook, um, which is which is pretty interesting, uh, you know, a tool that didn't even exist 10 years ago. But um, the other family, um, Joseph Grislak and, and the mother, uh, her name is Anne, when we actually, we had a, a connection within the day organization um, that, that kind of made that happen. So uh, it's a combination of things, but I, I do put forth a lot of effort to try to get a, someone to talk and tell me, you know, what did we just lose? So how do you prepare um, as a journalist to, uh, when you go into one of these interviews where you know people have to share, um, you know, these really sad and, and, and painful uh, stories? Um, it, it's... It's hard. I don't think it's something that I was ever taught. It's kind of um, 
I don't know, it has kind of come naturally to me. And honestly, it's more about less. And by that, I mean, I really don't ask a lot of questions. I I listen and I let people talk, um, which generally leaves them feeling like they've rambled, but really they haven't. They've told me so much. and and that can be it can mean you know just letting there be complete silence for for 20 30 seconds it's really uncomfortable but it helps people think gather their thoughts and then they'll they'll recall another memory um so that's that's one aspect of it certainly obviously um is showing that my intentions are pure um not going for the flamboyant the dramatic the sensational i really just want to know who who the young man was um and i think once i can convey that then most people realize it it would be good for for everyone to know that what's your process to to digest everything you've heard um and 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 write uh an accurate meaningful story and also you know i'm thinking of myself i'm kind of a a weepy person and i it doesn't take much for me to get emotional how do you kind of keep yourself from doing that uh, with some of these stories? <laughs> uh, I tell you what, um, when I sat down with the East Lyme family, it was very difficult. Um, and, and I don't mean to say that the, the boating incident wasn't, um, but those were phone interviews, which is a little different. Um, I sat in the Maestrock's living room um, with the mom, the dad, and for a portion of the time, the sister. Um, as I said, it's approaching a year anniversary of the death. Um, it is still a very, very fresh wound for them, and they were so open and sincere with me, and I'm so thankful to them for that. Uh, but at, at times, I, I didn't really keep it together. I mean, I did, but it, it was very difficult. So, I mean, there, there's not an answer for that. If you're a human with feelings, it, it's not easy. Um, and it's not easy to write about dead 25, 6, 7-year-olds when you're 27 years old yourself. Um, so it's not easy. It doesn't get easier. Um, I will say that when you've gone through that process, um, I mean, you, you share this kind of bond with that family. I feel, you know, they, they shared some of their most intense secrets with me in, in an hour. That's all they knew of me. But, but now there's a bond there, and I still do um, keep in touch with them, and I probably will for, for the foreseeable future. Can you give a like a brief overview of each of the the stories? So the East Time family that I spoke to, um, as I alluded to a little earlier, um, they wrote in their son's obituary uh, that he was an athlete, that he was funny, that he was giving and caring, and also that he struggled with addiction. Um, and it, he fought it tooth and nail and and unfortunately didn't win. Um, and, and in the obituary is a call to action almost. Um, it, it calls on people to pay attention and, and we, we need to do something. Um, it's a very moving obituary. Um, and I noticed that right, right around when it came out, which would have been in February of 2016, right? No, 2017, sorry. Um, and I, here's, here's what happened. So I wrote a story about just the, the six month 
overdose totals, overdose death totals for Connecticut. Um, and that would have been around August. And in, even in August, uh, honest, honest, um, that obituary was still in my head. So I decided to lead the story with the example of how this one family decided to be open about addiction in the obituary. So they actually reached out to me after that and said they might be interested in sitting down with me at some point, but it, it was too soon. They didn't know when that would be, um, which obviously it ended up being a couple of weeks back. Yeah. And, and so uh, the, what caught you was that this obituary was so candid and so truthful about what uh, happened to, exactly. to the person. Yeah. And, and I hadn't seen a lot of that. We see a lot of young deaths and not that this is just a young person thing. Please don't get me wrong. Um, we see a lot of unexpected sudden deaths people and that otherwise seem healthy exactly and you always wonder but this one left no wondering right. um so that is kind of the the story is similar in that um you know he danny started with pills and and that just transformed um so it's not a story in that sense that we haven't told before but um it, it was a story that looked at the idea of deciding to be honest in your obituary. It was a story that looked at the impact on an entire family, on a younger sister who's still struggling very much with with her older brother's death. Um, And it it was just very stark. And I think that's kind of why it was a little bit different. Um, Can you share some details about uh, the two um, young men that that died in the the boating accident? Sure. So that one, um, it's... it's, um, it's interesting because the parents of the, the two, uh, jo- they're both Joseph, Joey's, um, didn't, they didn't actually know how those two knew each other. And that's not something I was able to nail down. But through something, um, they end up on a boat with Justin. Now, Justin Besade, I could be saying that wrong, knows Joe Grislak. Um, that that we know, and they've been hanging out and fishing and hunting and chilling for for several years. They met at EB. Um, the other one again, I don't know how he knew them, but basically, um, these these were guys who, who who by all accounts knew what they were doing um, on the water that day. I guess uh, the the tides changed and the winds picked up rapidly and may may have shifted direction as well. Um, it was all relatively quick. There were a lot of duck hunters, which I should mention, that's what these guys were doing, waterfowl hunting, um, on the water earlier that morning. Most of them had headed back to shore. These guys were still out. Um, it's possible that they were also trying to get back to shore, um, but but something happened. Uh, some kind of wave might have caught the boat. Uh, no one's totally sure. No one actually saw it happen. Um, and uh, it flipped over. Um, you're talking, you're talking 37 degree water. Um, Justin was able to to make it to shore. We'll probably never know how that happened either. Uh, the other two, unfortunately, were not. They were recovered in the water, um, and the cause of death was accidental drowning. So it's just, that's that's it, um, which is obviously devastating, um, and, and surprising for for people who are out on the water all the time. So in that story, I talked to, like I said, the mothers of both of the deceased, uh, as well as, um, you know, I, I got a coach, uh, some friends. Can you describe each of them briefly? Sure. So um, 
so Joe Grislock, um, he is actually, well, he, he claimed Griswold right now, a resident of Griswold, we'll say. Um, he had worked his way up uh, the ranks at, at Electric Boat relatively quickly. Uh, as far as I know, he was 29. He'd been there about 10 years, and he was already to this rank called Charge Man. Um, familiar for people who know EB, but it wasn't familiar to me until uh, this week. So um, it's like secondhand man to the supervisor. So he was basically had 14 people under him within that group, um, which is which is pretty cool to say at 29. Um, and, and he was just—he was a family man. He was—he was at home. He helped his mom out a lot. Um, the other Joe, um, he was a resident of East Haddam, um, and he had a two-year-old boy, uh, Giovanni, and uh, a wife named Sean. Um, and the, the photos of, of him with his son are just, they're heartbreaking. This kid just loved him, you could tell. Um, they were both just smiling in everything all the time. So I think, uh, you know, that was obviously the most recent development in his life. But uh, beyond that, he was, um, he was a star linebacker at Xavier in Middletown. Um, and that's, you know, that's the coach that I talked to who still remembers him fondly all these years later. Um, and by all accounts, both of these guys were just the, the type of guys that made you feel good. They wanted to make sure you were okay. Um, they were just genuinely nice dudes. And uh, it's really unfortunate that, that this happened. I have to go back before we go forward. Uh, back in 2016, uh, North Stonington as a town after much discussion about what to do about some issues in maintenance primarily at their schools, uh, they were presented with this $38 million school project uh, that the estimate was the town would be on the hook for about $21 million of due to uh, state aid. They voted in 2016. It was one of the larger, largest voter turnouts in any town election they've had, and it passed by just three votes. Uh, 908-2905. As the years went by, the town remained fiercely divided over the issue. Uh, they even recounted the vote, uh, exact same, obviously, uh, which kind of brings us to the present day. Throughout all this time, the school building committee has continued to work on developing uh, construction of the project, and literally in a few weeks, they are expected to break ground on it. That is until at the end of last week, uh, the town received two petitions signed by about 50 residents total between the two position, petitions that called for the selectmen to call a town meeting and vote on whether to continue with the project at all. There was some confusion about whether they would comply with those petitions, but because North Stonington is an unchartered town, their attorney advised them that essentially they have no choice. They have to have these meetings and put it to a vote, despite the fact that they've already sunk at least one and a half million dollars into the project. So next Thursday, the town will have a town meeting with a brief presentation, and then they will vote right there, the residents, on whether to continue with this project at all, um, which ultimately, regardless of how it goes, you know, if it passes 
you know, project continues as is. If it doesn't pass, things get very complicated and interesting to say the least. Uh, they are quite a few financial liabilities in there, especially given they have already signed contracts with their contractors who have committed time to do the project. If they break those, they're certainly going to be on the hook for something. And there is a case that they could have contractors suing them for uh, essentially missing other work by agreeing to work with them. So it's really uh, big news in town. <laughs> this is kind of unprecedented as far as I can tell. And they're kind of trying to work out how they are going to do this in an orderly fashion. Typically, if you have a vote at a town meeting, it'd be a yay or nay. It's unlikely that would work just given how many people they are expecting to turn out for this. Um, so the selectmen are working with the town registrar to figure out how exactly they are going to vote on this. Um, I know for a fact that the first selectman expressed he really wants to make sure they can vote in a quick manner because he recognizes it's a weekday night and most people cannot commit hours and hours to being there that evening. So in light of all this, uh, one of our other reporters, Joe Wojcic, and I are producing a very, very large piece kind of outlining not just the project, but all the options and exactly what happens if they don't pass it, and that is expected to come out on Monday. Uh, there's been this lingering question about, well, if, essentially, if it fails, they have a few courses of action. One is they move to a different approach, which is piecemeal renovation of the pro or renovation of the schools. Their schools have serious PCB issues, so there's no way they can do nothing, um, and it would actually be more expensive to piecemeal it. Alternatively, they could elect to just shut down the school district, which means they have to find out where they're going to be sending students. A lot. Of, there's been rumors going back a few years about, oh, why don't we send students to Stonington, which opens up a whole other, uh, a lot of other things to unpack. So we'll be addressing that in our article as well. Hey there, thanks for listening to the podcast. If you haven't already, I'd like to ask that you subscribe to us either on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever else you find your podcasts. And also please review us on Apple Podcasts so that we are easier to find for other listeners. Thank you.